Good morning, church. Thank you, Andrew. That was, um, man, excellent about sharing a prayer dialect. Amen. Let's strive for that as a church. I wanted to start this morning off again by thanking you uh, for your amazing welcome last week and for the pounding we received. Um, So many good gifts and blessings. Our pantry is stocked and we are feeling settled in our home um, a little bit more every day. So thank you for that. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, You guys have richly blessed us. When Ashley and I uh, attended Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, we lived right downtown by Michigan Avenue. Michigan Avenue. Is anybody here familiar with the city of Chicago? We got one. We got a few. Okay. So, anybody been there? Okay, a handful. All right. So, Michigan Avenue is like the tourist shopping center. So, when the weather's nice, which is rare for Chicago, um, there are thousands of people down there. Thousands, and there's really big stores and um, big crowds, and so. It's a common occurrence to see good Christians um, holding signs on Michigan Avenue uh, that say something like, repent for your sins, or Jesus died for your sins. Have you guys seen people doing this before? Maybe? Um, I think that kind of evangelism has its time and place. I don't want you to hear me as criticizing that or anything uh, I honor those who try to spread the gospel however they can. I've even participated in stuff like that myself. But these signs, oftentimes I'm taken aback by, right? They, especially ones that say, repent of your sin or something like that. Um, it, it, they, they take me aback because there's an assumption there that the world knows what that means, what sin is. There's this assumption that we could even agree together with the secular world on what constitutes sin, right? See, I I think our secular world right now especially is so far removed from the biblical concept of sin that most people don't really even think in those terms anymore. Maybe sin is even a, a dirty word, right? They're so used to sin all around them that they just expect it. They're so used to sin that they often even champion it. Right? We've seen this. Maybe we've even done that in our lives. Now, the Scripture is really clear that people are aware at some level that sin keeps us from the Lord. The Scripture, the scripture tells us that. Romans 1.19 says, what can be known about God is plain to them, and so on. So don't misunderstand me as excusing our culture in their ignorance for sin. Okay? But I think the attitude most people have is summed up in Paul's statement later on in Romans 1. Romans 1.32, which I think is one of the most important scriptures to understand sin in the world. It says, though they, that is everyone, everyone in the world, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, and this is after a long list of sins, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only do them, but give approval, right? I think that sums up our world and its attitude towards sin pretty well. Sin is a really big deal. But our world treats it as this mundane thing. Sin is an everyday occurrence. And in many cases, sin is thought of as a good thing. I wonder, 
in some self-reflection this morning. If the church, by and large, tends to think the same way. The churches that John wrote to certainly did. Our text today is 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. So let's stand and read the word together. Again, that's 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray and be seated. Lord, now as we receive your word, we pray that our hearts would be ready for it, that we would align our lives with your word, no matter how painful or difficult that is. We welcome that in Jesus' name. Amen. Like last week, John starts with God in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John sums up the message that the apostles received from Jesus like this. God is light. And to stress this truth, John says it negatively. In him is no darkness at all. It's actually in the Greek a double negative, which works in that language, but not in English. So It's something more literally like this. There is no darkness in him, none whatsoever. What does John mean that God is light? And that's the whole message. We aren't dealing with literal light here. John's not saying that we should worship the sun or that God is like a lamp or something like that. Light is used as a metaphor for different aspects of God and his character throughout Scripture. So, for example, Psalm 21, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Right? Here, light is deliverance. Micah proclaimed in chapter 7, verse 8, When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So, for Micah, light is God's comfort. Comfort. David sings in 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Okay, so all over the scripture, God is referred to as light or as a source of light. And sometimes this refers to him being the one who enlightens the mind, like for David here in 2 Samuel, or the one who guides the way as in you're a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. All right, John's use in 1 John 
has a specific moral quality that I want you to notice as we go forward. And he probably had in mind something like Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those, get this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. What John means, and this will be made clear throughout the letter, is that God is perfectly holy. He is morally perfect. Light is righteousness and holiness, and so darkness, on the other hand, is sin. John says that this is the message they received. The New English translation, the net version, which I I like a lot, translates that sentence like this. This is the gospel message we heard from him. And that's exactly what John means here. He's saying that this is the gospel. The, the, The whole gospel for John can be summed up in this statement about God. God is light. So we really have to pay attention, right? God is light. God is perfect. God is holy. The rest of the text today is a consequence of that eternal truth. So there's two action steps that John is trying to get us to take in response to the fact that God is light. First, take sin seriously. That's the first action step, verses 5 through 10. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, before we dive deeper into that statement, I want to give us a little bit more background for why John is writing this letter. He reveals some stuff going on in these churches in chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. It says, children, in this last hour... And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they're not of us. Okay, so we'll get to this scripture in a couple of weeks, but I want to draw your attention here for a second. Last week I mentioned that John would be dealing with some false teachers and with those who rejected the fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Right? That's this group, those who went out from us, John says. Biblical scholars call this group the cessationists, the ones who leave. And John calls them antichrists, which, you know, calling someone an antichrist is a strong statement. They rejected the gospel. That's what that means. They reject Jesus Christ. And even further, they twist the gospel to fit what they wanted. Part of their false teaching was about the person of Jesus. We talked about that last week. But this week, another part of their false teaching was about salvation, specifically about sin. So in verses 6 through 10 here, we get a taste of what they actually believed. Apparently, they were claiming to have fellowship with God, verse 6, while walking in darkness. And remember, darkness is sin. It's unrepentance. It's unrighteousness. These people walked in darkness. They didn't take sin seriously. How could someone 
really have a relationship with God if they walk in darkness? That's John's question. He's saying they can't. John says these people are are guilty of two offenses, actually, in verse 6. First, they lie, right? And of course, that must be true. Those who continue to embrace their sin have no real relationship with Jesus. They're just posturing. If we're not careful readers, we would be tempted to think that this scripture applies to everyone who has a real genuine relationship with Jesus, but who uh, infrequently or irregularly fall into sin, give into temptation. And that's not quite right. John will actually address that in a minute, Christians who still deal with sin. But John is dealing with those who don't take sin seriously. These false teachers believe that they could not sin any longer, or the things that they did did not qualify as sin anymore. And John says their first offense is that they lie. Second, their second offense is that they do not practice the truth. And for John, these are distinct things. Okay, so if walking in darkness is practicing sin, then practicing truth means living righteously, walking in the light. Verse 7, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So walking in the light is the same as practicing the truth. Okay, so let's get this straight. There were those who claimed to have fellowship with God, but they walked in the darkness, right? They did not believe sin mattered anymore. And more specifically, these false teachers taught that they, they literally couldn't sin anymore. John will make that clear in a bit. John is saying that Christians who have real fellowship with Christ live as if sin is still a big deal. I'm going to say that again. Christians who have a real relationship with Jesus Christ live now still as if sin is a big deal and it needs to be dealt with. So this false teaching that sin isn't a big deal after you come to Christ That's still alive and well in our world, in our church world. The formal word for this false teaching, you don't have to remember this, but I want to give it to you, is antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti meaning against, nomia meaning law. It's the belief that because God's grace is so available to us, we can sin all we want and he has to forgive. Okay, so where do we see this belief today? This false teaching is alive in any movement that downplays the clear word of God on sin issues because they think it doesn't matter anymore or the Bible's out of date or we need to update Christianity. It's alive and well in any movement that thinks people can get fully away from sin in this lifetime. That's literally what the false teachers are teaching. It's alive and well in any church that refuses to deal with sin in its members because that may make some people upset. Wherever sin is not taken seriously in the church, antinomianism is alive and well. 
Paul dealt with this in the book of Romans. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Does anybody know the answer? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's a great question. Paul gets it, right? Sin is the whole reason Jesus had to die on the cross. Sin is so offensive to God that it had to be dealt with painfully. How could someone claim, how could someone claim to have fellowship with God but walk in darkness? That's John's question. How could someone claim to have a real relationship with Jesus and think that he died to remove something that really wasn't a big deal in the first place? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. John says that those who take sin seriously and practice righteousness by walking in the light follow Jesus as he walks in the light. And beyond that, they have fellowship with one another. You see that? That's interesting. I I love this. It subverts expectation. We would expect that John would say we would have fellowship with him. But he doesn't say that. He says we have fellowship with one another. And remember, last week we talked about fellowship quite a bit. It's only in this chapter right here that that Greek word appears in any of John's writings. This is a really big deal to him right now. True fellowship with God is expressed in fellowship with other believers. That's John's point. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Because first we have fellowship with God. One leads naturally to the next. Remember, these false teachers are also known as the separatists or cessationists. They leave the church, right? They separated themselves from fellowship because they thought they had better teaching. John's saying that's not what good, right teaching would result in. It would result in deeper fellowship. This is not how the gospel works itself out in our hearts. If we have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, we'll want a vibrant relationship with his people. Let me say that again. If we have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, we will want a vibrant relationship with his people. And that starts right here, right? If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, there's so much beauty in that one statement. I'm going to really have to discipline myself to stay on task here and get done on time. So the blood of Christ, of course, refers to the death of Jesus, where his blood was literally shed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. The blood of Christ is our salvation. And John brings it up to highlight the impact of sin. Jesus' blood would not have been required if sin wasn't a big deal. But it's only because of the death of Christ that our sin could be dealt with. 
It's only through the blood of Christ that we could be cleansed from our filthy sins. That picture of the blood of Jesus cleaning, I think, is astounding. Anybody do laundry in their home and try to get blood stains out? Blood doesn't seem like a cleaning agent most of the time, right? But Jesus' blood cleans us from the filth of sin. Those who claim that sin isn't a big deal have no participation in the cleansing blood of Christ. Walking in the light, I want to be careful that I say this, walking in the light is not a prerequisite for or requirement for Jesus' cleansing blood. That's not what John is saying. Instead, walking in the light reveals to us and to those around us who we have fellowship with that Jesus' cleansing blood is in effect in our hearts. You don't have to be super good to earn God's grace. Jesus saves you. And as a result, you should want to walk in the light. And this isn't a one-time cleansing. His blood cleanses us from all our sins. That's what he tells us. Each and every one. And so, John goes on, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Well, of course. Of course. We all feel the effects of sin daily, right? Whether that's temptation or part of creation being broken because of sin in sickness or uh, in tribulation or whatever it might be, sin affects our lives to a great degree. And if we say we have no sin, we're not just lying to the world, as he says in verse 6, we're lying to ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We need the cleansing blood of Jesus every day. Every day. And if we stop feeling the need for the cleansing blood of Jesus, we may not be walking in the light. And so if we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? See, that statement, that's not just the first time you come to Jesus. Of course it is. But that's every day. That's the constant walk of every true believer in Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Acknowledge that they're a big deal, that you need the blood of Jesus Christ, and God is just and faithful to forgive. We confess our sins, we acknowledge them, we repent of them, we take them seriously, right? We understand that sin is the very thing that separated us from God in the first place. But then we rest. We rest in the assurance of God's grace and forgiveness. He is faithful to forgive. He says two things. He is faithful and he is just, right? He's faithful in that he responds each time when we confess our sins and and call for grace through Christ. But he's also just. He's just to forgive those sins because those sins have been dealt with in the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. And so, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. Verse 10. This group of false teachers went beyond claiming that sin wasn't a big deal or that they couldn't sin any longer. They went beyond that. Apparently, they were claiming that they weren't sinful at all. In verse 6, John says that claiming to have fellowship with God while walking in darkness is a lie to other people, right? And in verse a, 8, where he says that saying that we are without sin is a lie to ourselves. So there's two lies so far. Now in verse 10, claiming that we've never sinned is calling God a liar. Yikes. But again, that has to be true. Why would God send his son to deal with sin if people really didn't have sin? If they hadn't sinned? If we claim this, then then God's word must not be in us at all. That's John's conclusion in verse 10. If we claim that we are without sin, his gospel must be very far removed from our hearts. Do we take sin seriously as a church? Or are we quick to excuse it? Are we quick to ignore it? Paul says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And that's after he says that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, there is a constant war in our hearts after we come to Christ. The enemy wants you to stumble and fall, to give in to temptation, to become nullified for the work that God has for you. But it is our duty, according to Paul in verse 13 of chapter 8 of the book of Romans, to kill sin. It is our duty to live righteously, not to earn salvation, to become as good as possible so that Jesus might love us. No, that's not it, right? Our justification has been won for us at the cross in the blood of Jesus. But it's a response to that salvation. My favorite quote of all time, and I'm so happy I get to share it with you in my second sermon here, is from the Puritan John Owen. John Owen, who said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It's my favorite quote because it reminds me how to live like a Christian every day. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So how do we kill sin? He's got a little book called The Mortification of Sin. And if uh, if you're a reader, I highly suggest you read it. He says there's two ways we kill sin. praying to the Holy Spirit and through the blood of Jesus Christ every day. 1 John 1, 9, confessing our sin. That's how we kill it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. If that verse wasn't there, there wouldn't be a whole lot of hope here. But for us Christians who feel the effect of sin every day and have to deal with it, have to kill sin. That verse is a life raft, amen? Something that we cling to. 
He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. Praise the Lord. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And the first consequence of that, the first action step we have to take is to look at sin and take it seriously in our lives, to kill it, or else it'll be killing us. But second, we have to trust Christ completely. We have to trust Christ completely. If God is light, and if sin is a serious thing, then we have to trust the one who paid the penalty for sin. If we can't deal with sin on our own, we have to trust that Christ paid it. So John says, my little children, as a pastor would say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John tells us another reason why he's writing the letter here. Remember, he's already told us one reason back in chapter 1, verse 4, so that their joy may be complete. And now he says that he's writing so that his readers may not sin. And hopefully we've gotten that message so far, right? So far this morning. Sin is a big deal. We can't believe the false teaching that we can become sinless or we are sinless or sin was dealt with on the cross so now I can do whatever I want. John makes it clear that that is walking in darkness. He doesn't want us to sin. But if anyone does sin, See, here it is. Here's the comfort for Christians. We're going to sin. He's writing that we won't sin and we have to kill sin daily. But when we do sin, there's something to be done. Doesn't that idea just kind of sum up the whole Christian life? Like, hey, don't sin. But when you do, right? That's kind of it. Be killing sin, but sometimes sin will be killing you. When we first start on this walk with Christ, and some of you might be there today, like newer Christians, baby Christians, we're not really good at killing sin. It seems like the battle is lost more often than not. And as we grow in faith in Christ, we start learning the strategies that we need to kill sin in our lives and to live righteously. Does does that mean that we're without hope when we lose the battle to sin? No, of course not, right? John says that we have an advocate, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's good news. The one who paid the penalty for our sins by his blood is also the one who goes before the Father on our behalf. Jesus is our advocate. That's a powerful word. The Greek word is often used to talk about the Holy Spirit. That's how we see it most usually applied to God. And that word is translated often as helper for the Holy Spirit. But here, the sense of the word is as a mediator, a go-between. It's not too far off to think of this word as similar to lawyer, but that's not really the fullest idea. 
Let me give you some historical context from John's use of this word. In the Roman Empire, in order for someone who is in trouble but has no relationship with the emperor to gain some sympathy with the emperor to help solve his problems, it was wise for that person to find a powerful friend who had access to the emperor and a relationship with the emperor who could plead their case. Okay, so this this advocate would be the go-between. He would be the mediator between the party who was in trouble, who owed a debt or did a crime or had some type of claim or something he needed to talk to the emperor about, and the party who had the ability and right to punish, right, the emperor. He was the go-between between the two. So here, Jesus is called our advocate in the same way. He is close with the Father and understands his power and right to punish because he himself is God, but he's also 100% man, and he is able to represent us before the Father. We could not ask for a better mediator between God and man. It's an amazing picture. Jesus is fully aware of your sin, He's God. He knows your heart. He knows everything that you think and that you've done. And yet, when we sin, he points to the cross. He points to the sacrifice and his blood that he shed on the cross. And the Father isn't disappointed in this, as if he's eager to punish sin in us, but constantly appeased and told to calm down by Jesus. That's not what's happening. This was the plan all along for Jesus to become our great high priest. God is pleased in Jesus' advocacy for us. Praise the Lord. And what an advocate. His advocacy extends so far, goes so far, that he died in your place. He took the punishment for our sins. In verse 2 says... He is the propitiation for our sins. Maybe your Bible has a different translation for that word propitiation. There's much debate on how to translate that word. But the idea is that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, the one who paid the full price. He was our substitute. Propitiation means that the wrath of God was dealt with. God's wrath which was justly reserved for you, was turned away from you and pointed at Christ on the cross. That's what propitiation means. And he's not ours only, John says. He's the propitiation for every believer, no matter where they are on the globe, for the whole world of believers. There's nothing left to pay. There's no work yet to be done. Christ has paid it all. He has done the work. Amen? Amen. All people, everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ find the grace of God freely given to them. Their debt has been paid. Sin has been dealt with. And even when we sin in our lives now, after we come to Christ, Jesus points to the cross and says to the Father, yes, but I dealt with it. And the Father says to Christ, yes, 
you did. Does this give us room to continue in sin? By no means. Right? Of course not. How could we continue to walk in darkness in light of such a wonderful sacrifice? But it should give us some assurance today. The sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for the whole world. It wasn't a little sacrifice. As if he could only die for 10 or maybe 11 of your sins. He died for all of your sins. His sacrifice was sufficient for all of it. And not just the ones you do today, but the sins you've committed tomorrow and all the sins you've committed in your past. Praise the Lord. Trust in Christ completely. If you've not done that, I'm calling on you to do it right now. If you have put your faith in your ability to not sin, you're trying to... uh, earn some good favor with God by living as righteously as possible. I'm I'm telling you something. You cannot have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. You have to confess your sins. And here's the good news. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So I am calling on you today to do exactly that. Salvation is found in no one else. Definitely not you. Don't trust in your ability. Trust in Christ alone. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity and the blessing to open your word today to 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that take sin seriously that we wouldn't excuse it in our lives or think that we have to get to a certain point where we are free of certain sins in order to curry your favor or something like that. Lord, we pray that we would be a people that rely fully upon your grace. But beyond that, Lord, we pray that in light of your grace and your love, we would strive to not sin. That with the partnership in the Holy Spirit and through the blood of Jesus every day, we would slowly but surely separate ourselves from that dead sin, that dead man that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. And we would live by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We pray that you would help us to do that. Because you're so good. And we want to walk in the light and have fellowship with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.